I'm so glad you're here this morning. Thank you for joining us. We've been doing a series of Why I'm Not, where I explain the reasons that I'm not this, that, or the other. As part of that series, there are handouts, but we are emailing those handouts rather than uh, having people, bless their hearts, spend so much time on their Saturdays up here making hundreds and hundreds of copies. So if you want a copy of a hard copy of the lesson, which I urge you to get, Email us, biblical-literacy.com. We'll put you on the mailing list. We'll send out this week's lesson to you. This week's lesson includes a link to one of the songs that we'll feature during the class. So I really hope that you'll bother to get the electric version, electronic version, so you can download the song, listen to the song. Now, this is, this week, another Why I'm Not episode. This is Why I'm Not a Hindu. And you may be thinking, well, who is a Hindu? Well, we'll get to that in a minute. But I want to tell you this. I want to to tease you for a moment. If I did not have the Bible, I think I might be a Hindu. If I did not have the Bible, I think I might be a Hindu. So with that little bit of a teaser... I want to explain to you why. But first we have to start, like everything else, with some nice legalese. Let me first legalese that emblem I've been using for Hindu. It is a Sanskrit emblem for a mantra. Om or Aum. It's almost an A-U-M sound. And a mantra is very important in Hindu religion because it's something you say over and over and over that moves you closer to Dharma and to to what you ought to be. And so you learn more of God, you learn more of yourself, you learn more of reality, you learn more, you get more insight when you meditate and you say a mantra. And Om is one of the core mantras that's deemed to incorporate the universal, everything. Now, this may not be that interesting to you yet, but how many of you were alive in 1970 when the Beatles broke up? How many of you know that the first number one song by an ex-Beatle on the charts was actually by George Harrison? George Harrison had the first number one hit. His number one hit was, My Sweet Lord. I loved that song. I thought that song was great. I was especially intrigued as a lawyer when he got sued over that song. George Harrison was sued under the claim that he had plagiarized or borrowed without accrediting some of the melody in that song. So, here's a little bit of the song. See if you recognize it. You know this song? Virtuoso on the slide guitar was George Harrison. Truly. Okay, so... That's the song. Now, the song itself is fascinating for him to get sued over 
for pilfering from other songs with it. The suit, by the way, was a question of whether or not he had pulled from a chiffon's song. He's so fine. You remember that song? Okay, here's here here. He's so fine. You got it? Keep that in your head. So you got he's so fine with a do lang do lang do lang or whatever that is. Da, 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 da. Okay? And then you've got Oh, I may not have it up here. Okay, we'll get to it in a minute, but we can do it without it. So you've got him singing. All right, you've got the chiffons. He's so fine. And then you've got my sweet Lord. And then they're doing do lang, do lang, do lang. And and in my sweet Lord, later on, he'll have the hallelujahs or the Hare Krishnas or the whatever. Okay, so it was determined by the jury that he had unconsciously plagiarized. In other words, it wasn't deliberate. It's like uh, this song I wrote one time. It goes, uh, um, uh, let's see. (laughs) I love my wife, yes I do. I love her and I love you. Okay, now... I might try to take credit for that melody, but I think subconsciously I stole it from A, B, C, D, E, F, G. So there wasn't intent found. It's not that he, because George Harrison, his defense was, no, 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 no. My melodic inspiration for My Sweet Lord was the Christian song, Oh, happy day, oh, happy day, when Jesus washed my sins away. And Drew's kind of like, and eh, no. Nah. He's so fine, my sweet Lord. Not, oh, happy day. So it was deemed, he didn't do it on purpose, but subconsciously he had plagiarized the song. Now there's an irony here. Because my sweet Lord is actually a a hymn, a song to the Hindu gods. And the irony is Hinduism as a religion incorporates all of these other religions and religious ideas. It really is kind of the all-you-can-eat buffet of religions. It's got all of these different options. You want Chinese? Here's sweet and sour chicken. You want Italian? Here's some pizza. You want American? Here's a pork chop. I mean, it's, it's the buffet that's got all of the options. So it's, it's a, a, a syncretism, goofy word, admittedly, but it's one. It's, it assimilates, it pulls together from all these different religions. So it's only appropriate that a song like that should pull together from all these different songs. Because there's a certain irony here. The Mahatma Gandhi... Mahatma is a title, an Indian honorific title. It means the venerable or the the holy. Gandhi referenced the all-embracing bosom of Hinduism. The idea that the Hindu religion just can embrace so many different things. 
And so it's only appropriate a Hindu song might, uh, or ironic at least, embrace so many different other songs within it. The theory behind the religion in a sense is that all roads lead to the mountaintop. So it doesn't really matter which road you're taking, it's all going to get to the mountaintop. And there's this umbrella of Hinduism that makes it really hard to define exactly what is a Hindu and what does a Hindu believe. You will find Hindu believers that don't believe God exists. There are atheist Hindus who are thorough Hindus. They just don't think there's a God. Then you'll find Hindus who believe there's one God. You'll find Hindus who believe in three gods. You'll find Hindus who believe in millions of gods. And they're all under this umbrella of Hinduism. It makes it really nice. It's kind of like that buffet where, you know, you can take the whole family because everybody's going to find something they'll like. And so you can say, well, I only believe in one God, but I think the God is this, that, and the other. Hey, you can be Hindu and believe that. Well, I believe that there are lots of different gods. Well, you can be Hindu and believe that. I don't believe there's a God. You can be Hindu and believe that. So it's not surprising to find a lot of people embracing Hinduism because it Hinduism can become whatever we want or need or think it should become. So under the umbrella of Hinduism, we have Julia Roberts. She uh, uh, professes a Hindu faith. George Harrison, that I've already talked about, says he's a Hindu. Um, what's his face that married Katy Perry? Uh, uh, Hindu. Russell Brand, that's it. Jerry Garcia from The Grateful Dead. Hindu. Ricky Williams. Miami Dolphin running back who couldn't get into Texas Tech, so he had to go to the University of Texas for undergraduate. <laughs> Hindu. J.D. Salinger, catcher in the rye. Hindu. All of these people are Hindus, but, but they can have so many different beliefs it makes it really hard to get there. Now, the question I've got is, do all roads, in fact, lead to the mountaintop? I don't think they do. I'm firmly convinced the answer to that is no. Some roads lead to the beach. <laughs> you might have a bunch of roads that go to the mountaintop. But it's like Pastor David said one time in a sermon. You may think all roads go to Dallas. But don't get on I-10 expecting to go to Dallas. Ain't going to happen. It sounds nice to say all roads lead to the mountaintop, but it doesn't pass. That's one of those analogies that sound really good until you think about them. And when you think about them, it's kind of like, no, not even all mountain roads lead to the top. There are some that dead end. So, no, all don't. Here's what we got to do. I want to talk about what Hinduism is, and then I want to tell you the problems I have with it, and then we'll conclude and give some points for home. What is Hinduism? Originally, by the way, the religion's been around for 5,000 years. 
but the term itself is a creature of the last thousand years or so. The term itself is actually a reference to people who live on the other side of the Indus River. They're Hindus. It's just got an H sound. Hindus instead of Indus. Because the H was depends on your culture and society. I was telling Naz, I think they were Iraqis, I mean Iranians, not Iraqis, sorry, big difference, I know. Iranians who originally ascribed this word as Hindus for the religion of the people who live on the other side of the Indus River. Now, if your geography is not good enough to figure out exactly where that is, I took a, a Google Earth view of the Middle East to help orient us here. That's Turkey up there. Uh, there's Egypt. You can see Egypt. Europe is over there. Here's Iraq. Here's Iran. Here's Afghanistan. Here's India, which, by the way, gets its name from the Indus River, which is there now in modern Pakistan. So on the other side of the Indus River, in the land of India and Nepal, is where the Hindu religion got its start. And originally, it's just a reference to what those people over there believe. And that's one reason it's got so many different beliefs. And there are so many different um, ideas that get swept up under the rubric of being a Hindu faith. It's the religion of ancient India and Nepal. So within that framework, what do we know about it? There are no set beliefs. There's no orthodoxy. There's not a creed. There's not a checklist you can go to. Nobody has established a list of what a Hindu is and what a Hindu believes. It's just not there. There's no structure and hierarchy. You don't find it on a national level where there's a national structure of, you know, the Hindu society internationale. There's no local, no state. There's no church structure the way we think of it. So you don't have the benefit of that either. There's no founder. You can't go back and say, well, you know, Buddha founded Buddhism, yes. Who founded Hinduism? Huh? Judaism? Moses, I guess, founded at least the, the practice in the sense of God spoke to him. Christianity, certainly Jesus. Islam? Muhammad? Mormonism? Joseph Smith? Hinduism? Huh? Nobody knows. There's no real founder. It was just the religion. There's not even a clear set of scriptures. Some people will say, well, you've got uh, uh, the Vedas. Well, yes, maybe, but which ones and how much and what about the Upanishads and what about the Bhagavad Gita and what about all these other writings? It's all, you know, basically it's kind of, uh, okay, a lot of holy people in the history of India have written holy writings about what they perceive to be the truth about divinity. Not the candy. God. The truth about divinity. And so those are holy writings 
And you go back and you try to read them and you can read their myths and you can read all of these different things. But there's no clear set of scriptures that you say, well, this is the Old Testament or this is the New Testament or this is the Book of Mormon or this is the Koran. Doesn't happen. And this is why if you go back to the first prime minister of India when they were liberated and and became their own country, Prime Minister Nehru, by the way, after whom is named the Nehru jacket and the Nehru collar, because he wore them all the time. You can see him in one there. Prime Minister Nehru said the following, Hinduism as a faith is vague. He was a Hindu, by the way. A morph- by the way, Prime Minister of India, at the time 900 million people, 700 million Hindus. Hinduism as a faith is vague, amorphous, many-sided, all things to all men. It's hardly possible to define it. Or indeed to say definitely whether it's a religion or not in the usual sense of the word. In its present form and even in the past, it embraces many beliefs and practices from the highest to the lowest, often opposed to or contradicting each other. That's what Hinduism is. So what is Hinduism? I've tried to filter out some general truths that if you escape from these truths, you probably aren't Hindu. But these are just general truths. I'm not saying you can't. Look, I've been reading Hinduism for the last three months getting ready to teach this. And I got to tell you, you can probably find some Hindu book out there that disagrees even with these. But these are normative general precepts and they certainly give you enough to go on for today. Number one, practice trumps beliefs. It's not so important what you believe. It's important what you do. Your acts, your deeds are what make the real difference. You want to believe in one God? Believe in one God. You want to believe in three? Believe in three. Want to believe in 122? Believe in 122. You want to believe in 900, 653,479 and a half gods? You can do that. No God. You can do that. Practice. What are you doing How are you living? Practice trumps beliefs. This is a concept in the Sanskrit word Dharma. Sanskrit is the language of ancient India. And so the religion of Hinduism or ancient India is very closely tied to that language. And the language itself is deemed holy. And some people believe the more you study the language and the grammar of the language, the closer you get to God or God's or salvation, which means something different to them, liberation. I'll talk about that in a bit. Now you may be saying, oh, I know Dharma. I watched the TV show Lost. They had the Dharma Initiative. Yes, it's spelled the same way, and yes, it probably was stolen from the word, but I could never figure out the show Lost, much less what the Dharma Initiative was. So get that out of your mind. It's got nothing to do with class. Dharma, as a Sanskrit word and in the Hindu religion, is a reference to truth or order or law or duty, even religion itself. It references the way things are. It references the way things should be. And Dharma is what we're supposed to be living 
to become and, and to actualize and, and to follow and to obey. It is a rule of life that's going to teach us how to practice being good people. Now, Max Mueller, well, let's first read the quote since I threw it up here. Then I'll tell you why you ought to pay attention to it. Max Mueller said the following in a speech given in 1901. Oh, I can't tell you yet. I, I can't read it yet. Here's the deal. Max Mueller was probably the first Westerner, as we would call those of us from Europe and, and, uh, the, and the Americas. He was the first Westerner to really study in depth the Indian faiths and others. He taught Sanskrit at Oxford for over 40 years and was the guy. So he spent a lifetime studying these religions and Hinduism in particular. And in 1901, he gave this speech where he said the following, I ventured to tell this gathering what I have found to be the one basic note the single cord of all these holy books, all of the holy writings of Hinduism and others. The one basic note or cord that runs through all of them is that salvation is by works. They all teach that salvation must be bought and that your own works and merits must be the purchase price. Our own Bible... Our sacred book from the East is from start to finish a protest against this doctrine. And he says it, it sets the Bible apart from not only all of the holy Hindu writings, but also all of the writings of, 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 of the Buddhist, uh, from the writings even of the Koran. It makes them different. Practice trumps belief. Let me tell you a second generality about Hinduism. There's great flexibility on gods. Gods are just something that we don't really know the answer to. So you've got a lot of flexibility. You can say there are gods. You can say there aren't gods. You can say there's a god. You can say there's whatever number you want. There's a great deal of flexibility. This is the buffet that's got a little bit of everything in it. And so ancient Hinduism had some really, I won't say nasty beliefs, but had some really um, offensive beliefs for modern society. And so what modern Hinduism has done is come in and just added new things to the buffet. Okay, well, we used to believe that it's virtuous for a widow to burn herself on the funeral fire of her husband who's died so that she can bestow her good karma onto his. We're not into widow burning today. Not some... <laughs> hey, Miss Carolyn, Hank's not dead yet, okay? <laughs> Hank, she's clearly thinking you're predeceasing her. That's all I'm saying. As your lawyer, I'm telling you, I picked up on that, and we got witnesses. Okay. Miss Carolyn, don't you do anything to his food now. You, we are all on notice. Um, all I'm telling you, all I'm telling you is, we, you, you just add to the buffet. You want some Italian food? We'll add some pizza. We'll add some spaghetti. 
You want some Croatian food? We'll add, I don't know, what do they eat in Croatia? Uh, we'll add more Italian food. Yeah. So here's some, some, some of the core mythologies depending upon which branch of Hinduism you want. A lot of Hindus will recognize three central gods. There is the god Brahma, whose Brahma in Sanskrit means grandfather. And he's kind of like the god who creates everything. And so you've got those who believe in him, believe in a creator god. The thing is, not a lot of people really worship him. There are not a lot of temples built to him because he can't save you. He's just responsible for creation. And then you've got Vishnu, who's the preserver. And Vishnu will help you get saved. Vishnu also goes by other names. Uh, Krishna. And although Krishna sometimes can be other gods. I'm telling you, man, it's, it's, it's wild and woolly in this, this religious realm. Different people believe different things. But if you're following the mythology of these three, and then Shiva's the destroyer. And so you've got those three gods. Those are the three that George Harrison sings to in My Sweet Lord. Catch these lyrics right here. He says, "Mm, My Lord, Hare Krishna. Krishna, again, is Vishnu. Krishna is Vishnu. Just a different pronunciation. Hari is part of the mantra to Krishna. So if you say Hari Krishna, Hari Krishna, Hari Krishna, Hari Krishna enough, you get entranced into it enough, it helps you become a higher being. It's, it's good for you. It's good karma. So Hari Krishna, my, my, my Lord. Hari Krishna, mm, my sweet Lord. Krishna, Krishna, oh, uh, uh, Hari, Hari. Now, I really want to see you. Hari Rama, which is another Vedic prayer. I really want to be with you. Hari Rama. All right, here it is. Lord, but it takes so long. We'll come back to that in a moment. So that's that's the praise there that he's singing. That's the mantra that he's chanting. That's the driving force behind the song. Now there's another segment of the song where he breaks into a specific prayer to the three gods. A prayer of praise or guru to Brahma, to Vishnu or Krishna... And to Devo Mahashara, which is another name for Shiva. And this is toward the end of the song. Here we go. Guru Brahma. Guru Vishnu. 
So that's that's what's uh, that's what's playing in your iPod when you listen to that song while you're running and not paying attention. <laughs> There's great flexibility on the gods. More on Hinduism. By the way, you need to know salvation. I need to say this, and I'll say it again in a minute. But salvation is not like, gee, I want to go to heaven. Don't think of it as a Christian does. Salvation is the idea that you're being absorbed eventually into the absolute or universal soul. There's this absolute universal soul. Those who believe in gods believe that it's a, a divinic soul, a uh, yeah, divinic, I guess I can make that word up. Those who don't believe in God and are atheist Hindus just believe that there's this universal absolute, but no deity behind it. And eventually you get liberated. You're no longer in this vicious cycle that we're in, that I'll talk about in a minute, of reincarnation. In essence, it's not quite the, the, the Buddhist, you cease to exist in your desires, but it can be. You just get absorbed into this, this absolute universal soul. And the way that happens is through this cycle of karma, reincarnation, karma, reincarnation. The ancient Indians recognized that suffering exists on a massive scale. We're a bit put off from this in the Western world in which we live. I'm not saying we don't have travails. I'm not saying it doesn't hurt when you lose your spouse. I'm not saying it doesn't hurt when you're facing cancer. I'm not hurt saying it doesn't hurt when these things happen. It does. But it's nothing like the scale of the ancients in India where you truly don't have enough to eat, where you truly have disease that runs rampant, where you truly don't have plumbing, where you truly don't have hygiene, where you've got mass populations with mass starvation, with mass dysentery, with tapeworms that are 25 feet long. I mean, it was a bad, bad suffering place. And so the religious people of the day are trying to figure out why. And they determine it's karma. What goes around comes around. But karma is not just, gee, I helped a lady across the road today, so tomorrow maybe I'll get bumped up to business class as transportation karma. Okay? No. Karma follows you from one life to another. So if you do good in this life, next life you're going to be a little bit better off. But you stink this one up. Here's the picture. Karma. Do good things and good things will come your way. Or the other side of that coin. You, you work through that picture. Follow those dominoes. You do bad things and you're coming back worse off than you are now. Karma will follow you through your next embodiment. And your next embodiment. Some people think you might come back as an insect. That's one reason some Hindus don't want to kill insects. That might be grandma. You know, you, 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 this re-embodiment is one. 
Because the ancients recognized that you reap what you sow. And thinking that this life doesn't end, they think that you then reincarnate or re-embody and that karma tracks with you. So the goal is to do the best you can so that one day you have gotten so good, you have earned your way out of this cycle of reincarnation and karma and you've just been absorbed into the absolute whole of the universe. This is also what upheld the caste system in India for centuries. The caste system, uh uh-oh, we lost our PowerPoint. Are we going to get it back? Huh? I, I can't hear you. Oh, they're working on it. Well, that's that'll save you. If you're Hindu. Can we... Um, someone's got some karma coming back on that one. Let me explain the caste system to you. I'll draw one. I'll draw it. We'll go to the Elmo here. So here's the caste system. There are people who are really, really well off. These are the Brahmin. Yes, it's related to the word of, I think it's probably got an I, related to the word of Brahma. And these are the people who, who are the holy of the holies. These are the really good people. These are the people just underneath the gods. You know, it's just a matter of time. They're like in their last, whoops, they're like in their last incarnations before they get liberated. And then below the Brahmins, you've got layer two. And these are still pretty pure people. These are warriors and kings. And folks like that. Okay? And then below that, you've got another layer of people in society. And by the way, you're getting less pure and lots more the more you go down here. And these are merchants and tradespeople and things like that. And then below them, you've got the really people who've got some pretty bad karma from some earlier lives. And these are the servants and the masses. Except for this one other caste or group down here. We'll call them the untouchables. They have been really bad. And they're the ones who have to do things like clean out sewers, take out feces, handle dead people, That's the untouchables. Now, because this is karma-based, and this is based on what you've earned, the system reinforced this tremendously. You're not allowed to marry outside of your caste. You're not allowed to breed outside of your caste. You're not allowed to live outside of your caste. And you, servants and masses, better be darn happy with your lot in life and better serve the warriors and the kings and the holy people extremely well or you may come back as an untouchable. So as long as you live good and do a really good job, next time you might get to be a merchant. 
And you merchants, don't go overthrowing the kings and thinking yourselves something you're not. Because that's going to send you, man, you could skip all the way down and be an untouchable next time. You need to support your kings. Then maybe you'll get to be one in your next life or the life after that. Is the PowerPoint back? Yes. So the caste system is there. And, and, and the thing is, everybody wants to be liberated and get to the top, but it just takes a long time. It can take many incarnations. You don't get to be with the gods overnight, much less immediately. Christianity, totally different. I mean, you ask Jesus into your heart. He says in Revelation, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And if you'll open the door, I'll come in and I'll eat with you right now. Your fellowship is immediate with the Lord. That's not the way. Your salvation is immediate with the Lord. That's not the way of the Hindu religion. The way of the Hindu religion is one that says liberation is going to take so long. Take a long time. This is what George Harrison sings. He says, uh, I think I've got it in here. Let's see. Maybe. I really want to see you. Really want to see you. Really want to see you, Lord. But it takes so long, my Lord. Now, you can cut that time down by doing more chants, by doing more yoga, by doing more good deeds, but you got to work your way there. And that's this Hindu faith. And that's where this uh, irony comes in. This all-embracing bosom of Hinduism is one that will not allow me to be a Hindu. I can't be one. I can't fit under the umbrella. Christianity does not fit under the umbrella. Look at it. Gandhi said, my Hinduism is not sectarian. It includes all that I know to be the best in Islam, Christianity, Buddhism, and Zoroastrianism. Truth is my religion. With all due respect to Gandhi, and I have an immense amount of respect for him, I have an immense amount of respect for so many of the holy people in Hinduism. I have an immense amount of respect for Gandhi. But he hasn't taken the best from Christianity because it won't fit on that buffet. Truth. Look, this is not an aspect of truth like defining the elephant of one's blind man is touching the leg while another one is touching the trunk. And another one's got the tail. And they've each got some aspect of the elephant. That illustration is not the illustration here where Christianity's got one little branch and, and, and uh, Zoroastrianism another. No. Christianity's got an entirely different elephant. It can't exist on that elephant. If it does, it's not Christianity. And truth is too absolute for me. You may say, well, this is a case of five blind people touching the same elephant. But I got news for you. If I'm supposed to be touching the same element, elephant, and yet what I'm touching is the furthest thing possible from elephant, it ain't an elephant. 
The best in Christianity can't be found in Hinduism. Let me give it to you this way. When I say truth is too absolute for me, uh, I've just hit the repeat button. Here's, here's an example. The Christian best is not that practice trumps beliefs. The Christian best is that belief trumps practice. The Christian best is that belief, and by belief I mean trust, like the Greek word pistuo, translated belief. I mean trust, a conviction. The whole purpose of Calvary is that works, practice, won't get us to God. The whole Christian message is that works won't get us to God. Jesus has to pay for our sins. The whole Christian message is that belief trumps practice. And if you trust Jesus, then it doesn't matter how bad you've been. You have fellowship with God. You get to see God. God is definite. God is revealed in Christianity. God, we're not sitting there trying to figure out who God is. And we've got Jesus to fulfill our karma. Karma's not chasing me because karma, my karma was taken by Jesus Christ on Calvary. That's what Christianity teaches. Now I can see where Hinduism came from. I can see where it came from because it makes sense to me what Paul wrote in Romans chapter 1. Paul said in Romans 1 that there is a world of people who did not have the scriptures, the revelation that God gave to the Jews. And in this world of people, we go to the Elmo for a moment. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth. Look at this. What can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. God's invisible attributes, His eternal power, His divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. The problem is is that people don't embrace them as God and they don't see them clearly. Hinduism, to me, is a very natural outgrowth of what the Bible teaches. It, the Bible teaches that if we don't have God revealing himself in Scripture, as fallen human beings, we'll still sense that there's some divine. We'll still sense that there's cosmic karma. We'll still sense that we're made for more than this life and that suffering should not be the lot for which we were made. We'll still sense that there's something beyond all of this. And what Hinduism to me is, is the thinking of a bunch of wise people who don't have the revelation that we have in Scripture of the definite God who has revealed to us His love for us and explained to us that cosmic karma is interrupted by cosmic mercy. And cosmic justice is met by a God who can meet cosmic justice and redeem His people. 
Hinduism is mixed in with things when people would come up with a new aspect of truth. You know, Christianity doesn't think it's right and every other religion is wrong. True Christianity teaches that the evidence of God can be found in all sorts of ways. God's revealed the truth about who He is, the truth about who we are, the truth about nature in the things that have been made and in the way we're hardwired. But we don't understand it until the Spirit of God infuses that understanding to us and works through Scripture to do that. And Scripture is God's revelation. And so I see Hinduism as gathering from the wise people for the ages, truths, trying to make sense of them, trying to understand one God, three gods, many gods, I don't know, you know, life beyond this, and yet karma is there, infused with a bunch of fallen humanism that tries to do things like keep people in their class. And it just makes sense to me where it came from. So I love the song, My Sweet Lord, but i got to tell you something. If you take George Harrison's My Sweet Lord, which is his ruminations and, and, and pion to, to the, the, the gods of Hinduism as he believed in them, and if you pull from that and, and filter that through revelation of Scripture, you get the version of My Sweet Lord that Phil Keggy recorded for our class this week. Where it's not, I really want to see you, God, but it takes so long. It's, I get to see you, and it doesn't take long. It's not Hare Krishna, it's Jesus, Jesus. It's not Guru, Brahma, it's praise God. So, Phil recorded the song for us with some lyrics that I rewrote. Would you like to hear it? Okay, here it is. And it's available, and there's a downlink to it on your emails um, uh, if you get the email lesson. See if this plays. Oh, my goodness. I'm not sure I inserted it. Okay, so here's what we're going to do. This is going to make it a very poor quality song. Oh, no, that doesn't help either. Yeah, okay, this, this, this will work. Just work with me here. Um, so I'll have to I'll have to play it out of this. Um, Brent, could you bring me that other microphone, please, sir? Oh, I can't believe I didn't insert this in the lesson. It's like I worked so hard on it too. Okay, so here it is. Oh man, it is so cool, and it's got like this spinning apple. And I've done the design where um, you you get uh, George Harrison's name comes out of it, and Phil Keggy's name comes into it, and. Okay, here we go. Can y'all hear this yet? Is this mic working? Did y'all hear that? You can hear it?
Yeah. So, anyway, um, uh, just as a side note, and I know we're a couple minutes over time, you've got links to that also on Facebook and others with the spinning apple and all of that fun stuff with it. So I hope you'll go find it. And I can tell you that uh, I don't think... Oh, it's in there after all? Whoops. Okay, okay, we'll skip it. By the way, uh, Phil Keggy did play with Paul McCartney at Paul McCart- at Linda McCartney's sister's wedding or something, but never played with George Harrison to my knowledge. Points for home. Paul goes to Athens, and he doesn't have a synagogue to attend, so he goes up to the Areopagus, Mars Hill, And he makes a proclamation and he's speaking to absolute pagans who, like the Hindus, have tried to understand God on their own wisdom rather than through the revelation of Scripture. And they knew that they hadn't understood God perfectly and so they had an altar to an unknown God because they wanted to make sure they covered everybody and they thought there are some gods they don't know. They didn't have revelation. And so Paul said to the men of Athens, I perceive in every way you're very religious. I passed along. I observed the objects of your worship, all of these different temples. And I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. Let me reveal to you who God really is. Let me bring light to the struggle that you've had to find that light. I want to know God And I want to share God. And I'm thankful that we've got an understanding that we've got the truth where God has said, you don't have to struggle to understand me without revelation. Here is revelation that tells you who I am, tells you my love, explains cosmic karma, explains justice and mercy, and explains love and compassion and redemption. And liberation won't be absorption into the absolute soul It will be dwelling with God himself in worship and adoration. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. This isn't all roads lead to the mountaintop. This is very much a faith that says if you want to be redeemed and you want to be with the Lord and you want to be forgiven from that cosmic karma, you'll never be able to work your way out of it. The only way out of it is through the substitution of Jesus Christ for your bad karma and mine. And we don't get more chances. We're not going to get re-embodied to try and get it right. And I don't care how many times you re-embody it, you're still going to mess up. So I just want to be on the road to truth. And then I finally close with Ephesians 1, 3, and 6, where Paul said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, to the praise of His glorious grace with which He's blessed us in the Beloved. And that's where we have the blessings. And so in the name of Jesus, I bless you, and I pray that you will find the revelation that is God. And that you'll walk in the fullness of that revelation. And in the release and the mercy that comes through the sacrifice of Jesus for our sins. Amen.